Okay, well, good morning, ladies. We are going to start this morning with just a simple question that I want us to think through. And we're going to dwell on it for a bit before we get to our passage. So here's the question. Do you get tired of hearing about sin? Do you get tired of learning about it, reading about it, talking about it, hearing sermons? I think of how we just celebrated Easter, which is, you know, the pinnacle of the Christian faith or the pinnacle of all of history. Um, And it's all about Christ's defeat of sin. And especially Good Friday was super focused on our sin. And then I think of Isaiah. We've been studying Isaiah on Sunday morning for a really long time. And it's all about Israel's sin and our sin, just over and over and over. Uh, It's been good, but it's been long. And Chantel even taught about sin last week in Romans. And if you're part of a growth group in our church, you're probably talking about it. If you're reading through your Bible regularly, it's there. And even on a different level, um, besides talking about it, we experience it. And I don't know if that makes you tired, but just, you know, seeing it on the news, um, talking with neighbors at work, and spend time, any time with your family, and you feel your sin against them and theirs against you pretty quickly. So sin is pervasive, and it's in our faces. Um, it's deep within our hearts, and it's also out without outside of us. And it's not going anywhere, this problem. And I don't know if you've talked to an unbeliever and heard them say something like this. Um, How can my actions warrant eternal punishment? Why are Christians so judgmental? I just heard someone say that a couple weeks ago. Can't we just talk about the love of God? And if I'm following my own heart, how can what I do be considered wrong? Perhaps... Maybe you can relate to some of those questions. Or maybe as a believer, you feel similar things, but a little differently. And you sometimes think, why does the preacher have to always be such a downer? Or he's talking about sin again. Now think of the Israelites. Think of what they were probably feeling. They were probably pretty tired of hearing about sin, too, because... They had prophets like Ezekiel and Isaiah, Jonah, all those minor and major prophets. And Habakkuk, these prophets would come and declare God's word to them. And the words were words of judgment, calling people out of sin, warning them, correcting them, calling them back to God. So I think prophets and preachers have pretty hard jobs. But the fact that And we all know this, is that sin does exist. We could pretend it doesn't. We could ignore the preachers and the prophets, and some people do. We could seek ways to feel better about ourselves, and I think we all do that sometimes. We could try to find the answer within. That's a pretty popular one these days. But this is like going through life with a virtual reality headset on. And I don't know if you've seen that or tried them. I think we all know what they are, but you know, It's a game you basically, or it can be a game, different things. You put it on and you can see different things. And if you've ever done it, it actually, the the world you're in not only looks real, but it feels real. Everything around you feels so real, but it's fake. So if you take off the headset, the real world is less flashy and fascinating, but it's at least you're actually in reality. And I think some people walk around with spiritual, virtual reality headsets on, pretending 
that there are not things going on in their hearts or in their heads or in the world around them. But we all know, I I hope you know, that you can't hide from sin. And here's the point I've been working towards in this introduction, is that if our sin is real, then judgment is real. And if sin and judgment is real, then there has to be a real solution to help us. So when we began the study back in January, we heard Habakkuk's plea to the Lord in chapter 1. So look back with me in chapter 1. We're not going to be reading it. Just look in the first few verses of 1. And his plea is, How long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? So the problem of Israel's sin was at the forefront of this prophet's mind. I mean, that was his job, to be a prophet, to tell people of their sin. But he had this question, God, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to intervene? Habakkuk was dealing with people who said they follow God, but they didn't live that way. The Bible is pretty clear that um, they said they were people, God's people, but they lived a different way. So it talks about them being idol worshipers. They were unjust. They were sexually immoral. They were liars, exploiters, adulterers, arrogant, evil. And the Bible sums it up over and over in that they forgot about God. So Habakkuk asks in chapter 1, What's going on? Aren't you going to intervene? Your people have gone astray. And God says, Do you think this is bad? Wait until I bring the judgment they deserve. And that's just really quickly summarizing what we've been learning most of this study. That God was going to bring these Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to judge his people because of their sin. So Habakkuk's question shifts to become, why is a holy God using evil to punish? Where is God in our suffering? Now, I just want to pause and say there are two audiences to the book of Habakkuk. The first one is the original audience. And this was written to a group of Israelite men and women who are waiting for this judgment to come. Their consequence for their sin and evil would bring them capture by an evil nation and exile. And they were going to be judged because their offense was against a holy God. But the second audience, which we need to keep in mind, is everyone after the exile. That's And everyone since. So that's people of Jesus' time and that's us. So there's two people, two groups of people this is written to. So today, thousands of years later, there's us who have the same problem of sin. We're in the same position. We are going to be judged for our sin because our offense is against a holy God. So the questions become, what were they going to do about it and what are we going to do about it? How do we handle the problems of sin and suffering and evil? Well, I'm not a scholar about world religions, but I just want to take a few minutes to talk through different world religions and um, how they try to address the problem of suffering. And um, these are just little snippets of information that I did a little research on. So we're going to start with Hinduism. How does Hinduism try to solve the problem of sin? Well, Hinduism denies that a problem with sin even exists. So there's no clear concept of salvation. Hindus work their whole life to eventually, in some future life, become one with their impersonal God, and this will free them from this current world. What about Mormonism? Mormons believe that the fall of man needed to happen because it allowed them to advance to become gods themselves. 
They reach this God status through a lot of good works outlined in their very own specific teachings. What about Islam? Islam believes that sin is disobedience to an established law, but sin does not grieve their God, Allah. Salvation is achieved by submitting to his will, and there's no assurance of salvation for them. It's granted only by Allah's mercy. So next, Buddhism. Buddhism is an impersonal religion of self-perfection, and at the end of it is not life. The end of their religion is death, extinction. That's their goal. Their life is full of suffering that can only be ended by living a narrow path of right living. And under their moral law of karma, which we're all familiar with the word karma, there's no escape through, um, except through un unceasing effort at self-perfection. There's Judaism, which is a pretty broad um, range. There's a lot of different kinds of Judaism or Jews. Um, but overall, Judaism is optimistic about one's ability to do God's will. And sin is not generally a major concern for them. The most common view is that repentance, prayer, good deeds, and suffering, um, that provides atonement. What about Catholicism? That might hit closer to home for some. Catholicism teaches that there are two types of sin, the more serious ones that do result in separation from God, that need atonement for, and the less serious ones that don't cause any change in their relationship to God. Catholics believe that their sacraments, things like baptism, confession, penance, marriage, and so on, are necessary for salvation. And lastly, these aren't religions, but I just wanted to mention, there are a lot of worldviews out there that are pervasive, maybe even more so in our circles in some of these religions, things like self-love, gender identity, pursuit of world unity, the fight to save the planet. And I think the most prominent one I, I'm here is just this general idea that if I'm a good person, things will go well for me. Um, and there's a lot of ideas floating around and you can hear some of these themes, these themes of like man needs to work um, to do to solve the problem and um, ignoring the problem is maybe part of it um, or that the burden is placed on the man and that or at the whim of an impersonal God who just might choose whatever he wants at the end of life but why we're all here is because we know the God of the Bible is different and here's where we re-enter the book of Habakkuk and we're going to look at our chapter so let's look at chapter 3 and we're going to see that Habakkuk has a real solution to the real problem of sin. So if you look at the beginning of chapter 3, um, in response to God saying he's going to bring this evil judgment on them because of their sin, Habakkuk prays. And note in verse 2 that this prayer is based on a report he heard. It says, I've heard the report, or some translations say, I've heard of your fame. So this report is actual facts from the history of who God has shown himself to be in the past. It's not based on personal, private experiences that Habakkuk himself had, but on public, recorded fact. And this report says that God is a God who saves. And that's what we've been learning about the last two lessons. It's all about God's saving power in um, Egypt, saving, saving the Israelites from Egypt and from the um, enemies in the Promised Land. It also talked about God's command of nature, and how his power triumphs over evil. So what Habakkuk is doing here is he's calling on what God has done in the past 
to help him understand what's going to happen in the present and the future. And that's what Noreen and Jenna really um, pointed out to us, is that remembering the past helps us to rightly interpret today and the future. So that's a really good habit for us to all make for ourselves. Let's look at um, the passage. We're going to look at 3, 12 to 15. I know you already read it, but I'm going to read it again. So 3.12, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck, Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. So we have these short four verses. And with the remainder of the time, I just want to look at the, the big question of what, is, what do these reveal about the character of God? And with that knowledge, I want us to see, okay, what is the character of God? How does that affect the Israelites then and us now? So I would propose that I think what it reveals about the character of God is that he is the only one who can take action to save his people. And I think we see it in the action words right there. You marched, you threshed, you went out, you crushed, you pierced, you trampled. So the reports are saying that in the history of the world, yes, God brings judgment, but he always saves the one true God of Israel will not leave his people to be overtaken by enemies. In Jeremiah 50, Babylon is called the hammer of the whole earth. Now, could you imagine having an enemy coming after you that was called the hammer of the whole earth? It was about to invade your country. And it was an enemy you brought upon yourself, so this could have been avoided. This superpower was an ultra-destructive tool was coming for your home. Imagine the fear, the worry, the hopelessness. And what they didn't know was that they were going to be in captivity by this enemy for 70 years, which was two generations. But the fame of God had been told, and Habakkuk says that there is a God, and he's going to march to war on behalf of you. So he's going to use this evil nation to judge, yes, but he himself will ultimately demolish the hammer with his righteous anger. And it says he will thresh the Babylonians like a farmer sifting grain, which I know we just talked about in our small groups, but think of a, a farmer holding a tiny blade of wheat in his hand, just separating it out. That's what God is like with this nation. He's infinitely larger than any enemy, and he's going to come and separate the righteous from the unrighteous. And then the end of verse 13 says, the enemy will be utterly defeated. It's going to be a thorough defeat because that has, is how God has already worked. He has crushed the rulers, the heads, and that goes down into their families, their nations, and he's going to thoroughly crush them. Verse 14 says, we see that God has taken the evil weapons that were created to bring harm and use them against them, which is something we also just talked about. So he's a God who turns the tables on those who think they have the upper hand. And because of him, oppression of the powerless never has the final word. God will have the final word. And then there's this imagery of a tumultuous, uncontrollable sea in verse 15. 
Um, and we see that God, the God of the universe is riding these waves like horses going into battle. And Matthew Henry in his commentary states it this way, and I love this. It says, All the powers of nature are shaken, and the course of nature changed, and everything seems to be thrown into disorder, and all is for the salvation of God's people. So these are all the things God had done in the past. Did the Israelites deserve to be punished? Yeah. But God is the God of salvation. And it, as it said earlier in chapter 3, he's the God who, in his wrath, will always remember mercy. There's no God like him. And in the middle of this action-packed part of um, Habakkuk's song is the beautiful verse that sums up the character of God in verse 13. Look with me at, at, at it again. It says, you went out for the salvation of your people. You went out for the salvation of your anointed. And this can also be translated, maybe some of your Bibles say, um, your salvation with your anointed. So God isn't just going out on some angry rampage. He has a purpose. So he, Habakkuk, is proclaiming that God always has a means of salvation for his people. And this time, he's going to use his anointed. And as we looked at in the week, the anointed was someone specially appointed by God to bring salvation, usually a king. And this is what brings them hope, is that someone is coming to save us. And so their hope foreshadows a deeper, more lasting hope that we know this side of the cross. And so their physical suffering would end. It's being promised that it would end when the Babylonians are defeated. But what about their spiritual salvation? So there's this bright little seed planted in the middle of Habakkuk in 2.4, if you want to look back at it with me. And it's this beautiful verse that says, The righteous shall live by his faith. And this little seed is a truth that grows and expands in the New Testament. And it explains that anyone before Christ who lives by faith in the one true God would live eternally because they were looking forward to a future salvation. There was faith there for them. And then we know that God in his grandest, most profound acts of salvation brought his son into the world to save us, which we just celebrated. So we know that Jesus came as the ultimate anointed one, the Messiah, and he came to seek and save the lost. And he saves from within, the sin that we have within, and he's going to save us from without, like all of the sin that's out in the world when he comes back and takes his children home with him. So God is the only one who will go out to save his people. He's the only one who can take action to save his people. And all of the religions that have been devised by man and made up, because they all have been made up, they just have, they have one thing, and they all fall short in this one way, and that their God is impotent. He is utterly, or they're utterly unable to do anything. They do not have a God who can actually do something about their suffering, or a God who cares about them, or loves them enough to take action. Or they do not have a God who can even do the tiniest bit about their, their sin problem. We have to remember that God has not left us alone to deal with our sin ourselves. Our personal, loving God has gone out for us. So to close, I just have three final thoughts about this. The first one is we need to consider what reports we're listening to about God. So who has our ear What knowledge is shaping the way we see God in our sin? If our understanding of God is based on personal experiences, we will follow a God of our own making. 
And if our understanding is based on teaching that's not directly from the Bible, we're just going to follow a God of someone else's making. So we have to be careful about what we listen to and where we find our information about God. The world has a lot of bogus ideas going on about self and sin and the creator and creation. We have to go to the Bible and we have to seek biblically driven sources for information. Because if God has spoken to us in his word, and we believe he has here, then we have to listen. So that's my first thing, my first thought. The second one is we need to cling to the true character of God. Who he is in the past should shape how we think about him and how we view our present and our future. Do you feel paralyzed by your sin? Or are you suffering from someone else's? sin that's affecting you, I would say, look to God. He will take action to save you always. Are you struggling with wondering why life is so hard? Why you're struggling physically? Why you're lonely? Why you're single? Why you have unsaved children? Why you have a difficult marriage? Why life just is a lot of toil and why it's a lot of work? I would say we need to look to the only God, the one true God, Don't look to anyone else. Don't look within, because those are just hopeless avenues to walk down. Because surely if God took action to save us in Christ, and if you believe he has, and if you know he's preparing a home for you in the future, then why would he not care about you today? Why will he not help us? Our daily worries are, are meaningful to him, and he loves us. And third and lastly, You have to come next week and hear Eva's lesson all about waiting because I think that's really the star of Habakkuk, of the the whole book, is just seeing how the prophet responds and what he does with all of this and how he handles the trouble coming and his choice to rejoice. So I wanted really badly to steal her thunder and teach all of that, but I had to restrain myself. So let's uh, come back together and just learn the final of what God is saying through Habakkuk. So let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you speak to us through your word, that you have revealed yourself to us, that we don't have to guess, we don't have to wonder, we don't have to try, that we don't have to toil and labor in our own strength to try to be saved and to try to solve everything that's going on in our hearts and around us. We thank you that you gave us Jesus, the ultimate victor over our sin. Thank you that you are a God who saves and you're a God who cares about us right now and will help us today in all of our daily struggles. Help us to be women who go out from today remembering your action. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks, ladies.